And welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends get together and talk about movies. I'm here with Dave and Connor. Sam is with us in uh, spirit. Um, We are... She ran away from the table in fear. (laughs) (laughs) She grabbed her phone and ran away from the table. That joke will make sense uh, as soon as we uh, get into our discussion of today's movie related to this month's dysfunctional families theme. But before we get into that movie, want to just check in, ask if anyone's seen anything good, bad, anything they want to talk about, movie or TV show related. Dave and Connor, take it away. I can't believe I hadn't brought this up before, but I watched the new Netflix show Wednesday a couple weeks ago. Uh, and it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Jenna Ortega, who I last saw in X, uh, great performance there, um, really kills it as Wednesday Adams. Pun intended. Uh, I don't. I don't really have much knowledge or affection for the Adams family as like a brand or as characters. Uh, but this show made me want to go back and watch the movies, learn more. Luis Guzman as the patriarch of the Adams. He's. I just love Luis Guzman. Catherine Zeta Jones as Morticia. I, a fantastic show it, it's like the riverdale formula of like teens who are hot and doing things in a school but it like does it really interestingly and with the veneer of like the adams family world just really pulls it off well with some really interesting twists and then i love thing the hand that runs around i cried at a moment that involved thing and i just never thought that would happen and also, everyone should look up production photos of how they filmed thing. It's a man mm-hmm. in a blue suit with like his hand and like a little snub uh, prosthetic on top of it, like running around. It's really interesting. But it's just eight episodes, uh, some or just one episode's directed by Tim Burton, uh, who directed the original movies, uh, and just oh, that was uh, Barry Sonnenfeld. Oh, was it? Oh, those wait. are those are movies that uh, are scream Tim Burton, but aren't. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. was he a producer. No, I believe so. Oh wow! Well, he's involved in the show for some reason. But yeah, I would say the show ten out of ten. Recommend eight episodes. Incredibly uh, bingeable. Jenna Ortega and Gwendolyn Christie uh, have a great antagonistic relationship, uh, especially because she's like five one and Gwendolyn Christie's very tall. So um, yeah, I can't recommend Wednesday enough. Uh, season two got greenlit before season one premiered. So uh, as Netflix cancels many great shows. At least there's some good shows still going on. I've heard great things. I definitely want to check it out. Yeah, it seems as though uh, this is a big year for Ortega. And uh, having not seen Wednesday, it it sounds like a great performance. So I'll be checking that out as well. One thing I reevaluated, I didn't go back and watch it again because I don't want to do that. But one thing that did click in my mind uh, was a previous episode that we covered in this theme, Krampus. I had some notes uh, as we discussed it about it being derivative of uh, of a Christmas vacation, the sort of slobs versus snobs, like suburban versus rural dynamic, uh, and realized that I was kind of missing the point. I think that that movie is a very timely release as far as winter of 2015. I think it actually has a lot of pretty, pretty brilliant subtext about different political perspectives 
uh, as you know, an encroaching and dramatic election cycle is uh, is coming into full swing. And I, I, it clicked for me because, like, if it were derivative of the uh, a Christmas vacation dynamic, they were just dealing with Uncle Eddie and them being like rural and relatively poor. This though is um, David uh, Kochner. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but yeah, he, him playing um, the, the the patriarch of like this sort of like more rural family. But it it doesn't do the kind of like rural socioeconomic divide thing. They're on pretty equal footing because he's got this giant Hummer that he's named Lucinda with all these elaborate and obviously expensive gun compartments. It seems as though it isn't speaking about class so much as it is speaking about political divide as a looming presidential election in which someone who uh arguably capitalizes on antagonism is uh is coming to prominence so perhaps a better movie than i thought now that i think about it does that mean that krampus is the personification of the decline of democracy who consumes all whether they're left or right is that what you're saying dave uh something like that or maybe he's just a looming threat of like uh you know the uh the the useless political landscape of uh of, of a exaggerated political binary that benefits neither side and that being why they're trapped in a forever cycle of dealing with that in a little uh snow globe as we did for let's say four years and uh onward so uh yeah i think that movie is a little bit more prescient and timely than i realized that makes me happy to hear. isn't it wonderful when butter with that movies make us think about them even after we've talked about them reconsider them, continue to process them. Well, on the note of storytelling with snow as a backdrop uh, and winterscapes as a setting to address family dysfunction, uh, we are talking about my pick this week, 2014 movie called Force Majeure that uh, was written and directed by Swedish filmmaker Ruben Ostlund, who's since come out with two other movies the square and then i think he did try tri- triangle of sadness i'm pretty sure that came out this past year correct me if i'm wrong um so he's definitely been making movies that have uh reached american audiences i saw the square in theaters it was a critique on the uh the art world and rich art patrons and things like that but this interesting film, movie yeah so you've seen the square dave i did yeah that's oh yeah it's interesting Yeah, um, I think I enjoy this movie more than The Square. But uh, for those who have not seen Force Majeure, uh, quick synopsis. So it's kind of a a farcical black comedy about a rich Swedish couple who go on a luxury ski trip with their two young children. Uh, When a so-called controlled avalanche at the resort barrels down on the family, the father grabs his phone and runs away, leaving his wife and kids behind. Although it's a false alarm and no one's hurt, the father's momentary instincts really set in motion a rest of vacation that's filled with distrust, resentment, and questions of familial roles and responsibilities. And the movie stars uh, Johannes Bakunk as Thomas, the father, Lisa Lovin, Kongsley uh, Ebba, the mother, and Christopher Kivju Matz, who's a family friend and uh, a man who's going on, va- who's a divorced man with, uh, who's going on vacation with a uh, younger girlfriend. And so, as I mentioned, 
This is set in the beautiful snowscape of, it was filmed in the French Alps. I don't know if it's supposed to look like Sweden. I'm not sure, but it is a damn nice uh, luxury vacation where this family is lugging their boots and skis around, sweating and groaning, trying to get up and down a mountain, uh, which is, I guess, essentially a ski vacation, (laughs) which this movie kind of makes look absolutely miserable. Um, So (laughs) I... (laughs) I thought instead of going beat by beat I or through the plot, uh, I would just open it up to Dave and Connor. Had you guys seen this movie before? Had you? Oh, wait, actually, Connor, I'm, I know you have seen the American mm. remake. So I'm really also not only curious to know what you thought about this movie, but how you thought the story differs uh, in the American telling and this original Swedish version. I can kick it off. Sure. Yeah, Uh, kick it off for us. So this was my first time seeing Force Majeure. And just quickly overall, I I liked it. Let's last week we talked about how we're sometimes whelmed by movies. Uh, I felt incredibly impressed with Force Majeure in a lot of ways, and then incredibly whelmed in other ways um, as well. But overall, um, enjoyed it, thought it was a really good movie. Uh, the American remake, on the other hand, uh, with Wolf, it's called Downhill, came out in 2020. This was the last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic. Really? Yeah, because it came out before everything went downhill. Everything before the coming out. avalanche. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. it came out on uh, Valentine's Day 2020. And so Alyssa and I, my wife, we went to see it. Uh, sometime around then, just like went out to dinner somewhere and then, oh, this probably will be a fine movie. Downhill stars Will Ferrell and uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Uh, it was directed by uh, Nate Faxon and Jim Rash of Community Fame and many, many other comedic uh, chops as well. And Downhill is terrible. Straight up Downhill, like D plus of a movie, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I heard that it was a remake of a foreign film but I thought it was like, oh, a film from like the 70s that, you know, some direct, you know, some writer, you know, they want to like kind of give an American twist to. There is no reason to do an English remake of a movie that came out in 2014. Like just straight up six. Like there's just absolutely no reason to. Uh, hopefully now that Parasite won the world over, we will never have to deal with this again. And people will just watch or just not watch movies with subtitles. And there's not even a hundred. The movie's not even 100% subtitled because there is English in probably, what, a quarter of the movie, a fifth of the movie? So anyway, Downhill, I was surprised at how different it is. Christine, you haven't seen Downhill, right? I have not. Uh, I sort of, I heard terrible things from you and, like, other things I was reading. So I was like, I enjoyed the original. I don't need to see a Will Ferrell retelling. I think that they wanted, I feel like making it an American family in Europe changes everything in many ways that the film doesn't really acknowledge and trying to make it a like Hollywoodized movie where like we're getting intense camera angles and the avalanche is coming down and oh, I got close ups and people freaking out. Like it's just force majeure is very understated uh, for better or for worse. And Downhill is just not that. Uh, Downhill's, I think, just a really pathetic movie in terms of trying to capture the nuance and dynamics and the real drama of what happens between this family kind of unraveling. 
Uh, and not even for comedic purposes. It's it's not a funny movie. What was just and I'll just without this is not an episode about downhill. Maybe one day we'll talk about it. Uh, but the I was shocked when watching Force Majeure of how little the phone itself, the cell phone, the iPhone, how little that device actually plays a role in terms of screen time. Where like in downhill, man, that Will Ferrell is glued to that, and like it's it's there's close ups of it. He has like this relationship with it, on screen relationship with the phone, much more thoroughly than that. And so I was like, oh, is this going to be like about technology? But because it's based off of Force Majeure, which is a movie not about people's reliance or over reliance on technology, like there's just so there's maybe infinite layers of disconnect <laughs> between the original and the English remake. Uh, that I could probably just That's go on for a very long time. So I was surprised at how competent Force Majeure was uh, because of just how ungodly terrible Downhill was. Maybe we can do a Bad American Remakes theme. That could be kind of fun. Yeah. We Ooh, would have to... Old boy. Fun for, fun for who? <laughs> Maybe not for us. Maybe for listeners. Let us know if you want us to do that. Um, Dave, having not seen either version uh, and seeing this for the first time what'd you think well i definitely want to see downhill now because it sounds like the kind of punishing thing that for some reason i enjoy Dave, uh, that's, but... up your, Dave, that's up your alley please watch <laughs> it see i think you should watch it too <laughs> i am i am kind of curious now yeah curious only because i think that this film is very dense uh that being force majeure to be clear, there's a lot to this movie. And it's, it, it, Connor, as you said, is very understated, but also very blunt and very uh, forthright in its semiotics and its its visual imagery in a way that I imagine the alternative isn't. Um, I, I found this movie to be uh, captivating, uh, captivating in a way that reveals a lot about character and character relationships, uh, fam- familial relationships. Uh, what gender roles play in heteronormative families and things like that. So I, I think there's a whole lot of subtext to mine here. Um, I thought it it went on perhaps a little bit long, but at the same time, when it's when it's firing on all cylinders back to back as far as sequencing, uh, it's it's really something truly special and insightful. So uh, I've been looking forward to talking about it since I saw it the other night. If I can make one recommendation for listeners, probably because our listeners probably not seen this movie, please do not watch it on Pluto TV, which is how I. Oh, uh, that's it. what I had to do. Yeah, it was rough. commercials. Just, <laughs> yeah, just, just rent it, pirate it. You know, just please do not watch it on Pluto TV because there's nothing like a random ass ad for Universal Blues Adventure in the big city whatever it is, uh, interrupting a really intense scene with a man crying because his family is leaving him uh, in an Ikea, like Swedish lodge or French, you know, please don't watch it on Pluto. Watch it literally any other way that does not uh, involve commercials. And something so like specifically and intentionally methodical being punctuated by commercials. Yeah, it was a nightmare. I agree. How the master is available, right? Too on Pluto. Yeah. Don't watch it on Pluto. (laughs) That's the bottom line. Don't watch anything that is intense and deep on Pluto. In case you were wondering, we are not sponsored by Pluto. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> 50% um, off of that free service this week with yeah. the code butter with that hates it. <laughs> um, I think have you guys, a good whatever. Yeah. 
I think you guys bring up some really great points. I think I would definitely agree that it goes on too long. And I think that was really clear as I was watching it for the second time. I think that what I had loved about the movie when I first saw it was the underlying sense of dread. And you really didn't know after that first initial avalanche, you really don't know what is going to happen. And I think the movie does such a wonderful job of moving between the family and then these larger shots of just the mountain and these mechanisms that trigger avalanches intent, I guess these fucking resorts will trigger avalanches to prevent them larger ones from real, really happening, which I guess makes sense. But just the back and forth between the family story and then these huge sweeping shots of these ominous mountains, this snow, it's quite wonderfully full of dread. And so I think that the movie builds this great sort of anticipation for maybe something else is going to happen. Who knows what other characters are going to be harmed? Possibly not. There's these themes of sort of instinct and survival, and they're on top of this mountain. It's like no human has any business being up there, which <laughs> I think it is kind of an interesting theme also thread throughout. But I do think that once I knew the full completion of the story, then watching it again, I think that sense of dread was not there as much. And I think that's when I was really feeling the film's length, having knowing what happens to at the conclusion of the movie. I think... Bouncing off of that point, it's really interesting having these dramatic mountain vistas. Uh, as someone who grew up in South Jersey near the shore, seeing big rocks in the sky is uh, definitely unsettling in many ways. And <laughs> not a skier. Definitely lots of sense of dread. Uh, compared with this very tight-knit, the, you know, theatrical-like story. I mean, this was adapted into a play where you have this oh. very intimate story. Uh, about this family kind of falling apart, but com- but the backdrop of the most one of the most dramatic places that people can be, like the French Alps, um, I thought was a really interesting kind of point of of comparison. Uh, I don't know if I have much to follow up on with that thought, but I just thought it was interesting of like small intimate family drama with the backdrop of enormous mountains and snow and all of that. And the lengths that humans go to, especially humans with immense amount of of wealth and money, the lengths that they go to to situate themselves in these remote locations. And I think that that the movie does such a great job of depicting a I'm uh, by all accounts a real resort where you know I'm sure it's like beautiful to have breakfast on the side of a mountain, but like this initial avalanche reinforces the fact that even in a controlled, supposedly controlled environment, it's like this sort of primal humans versus nature dynamic. And to fill people in, at the beginning of the movie, really the the scene that sets this whole movie off, kind of like an avalanche, is the family's had a day of ski. So his family's on a, a sort of five-day vacation, the resort. They're having a lunch after a nice morning of skiing and they're sitting outside on a patio and they hear this rumble. And then suddenly uh, they see the big billowing 
clouds of snow rolling down the mountain and everyone grabs their phone to start taking pictures. And then there's questions of whether this is going to be safe or whether they're in harm's way. And suddenly people start getting up out of their seats and then it zoom, it, it like rushes in fast on this patio. And we watch the father, as I had said in the synopsis, grab his phone and just <laughs> bulldoze over this guy and run away. And you see the mother, Ebba, hugging the kids and bringing, and the kids are screaming. And so we watch that happen. And then it takes a few scenes for the characters to even address it. It's like they kind of go on about, finish their day, finish skiing. And then it really isn't till they have dinner with uh, some a young couple that they meet at the resort that they start to really process what happened. And the thing that keeps re- getting returned, the th- the scene that the couple keeps returning to is this avalanche scene. And the two ca- the father and mother have different perspectives and views of what happens. Ebba, the mother, is explaining to this couple that they meet. Oh, yeah, Toma, she's sort of joking, but she's also in real time processing what happens. She's like, yeah, my husband just, instead of seeing if we were all right, he just grabs his phone and leaves. And then Thomas is sort of like half embarrassed, half trying to process it himself. So there are all these layers of a couple reflecting on a very momentary action and then trying to dig deep and try to understand what these instinctual reactions reflect about their own relationship and the sort of roles that they're supposed to supposedly be fulfilling, uh, like fatherly sort of masculine roles. And right, as Dave said, all these sort of gendered notions of uh, of heteronormative family responsibilities, supposedly. And it's through, it's like they can't even process it. They try to have conversations between the two of them, but really the audience gets the most information about how they're processing this personally by the way that they tell this story to the different people that they meet and encounter through the resort. And so it's a peeling back of like memory, of reaction, and then how couples want to like dissect and decipher what it means about their own relationship, which I think the movie does a wonderful uh, job of, of, of laying out. Interesting, especially in the sense that, like, when the father Thomas is uh, like recounting this to the the uh, the other couple that they're hanging out with, he he acknowledges that, like, when when he's telling the story, he's the first one to kind of like frame the whole thing, and he he's saying like, you know, it was, it was coming down the mountain, and uh, it became clear that uh, maybe something was wrong, maybe something was wrong, uh, and you, Eva, his wife, were scared. But then it wasn't that bad. And he keeps insisting on that. Like, this is like, this is something you built up in your head as something that you, you, Eva, my wife, has exaggerated uh, while not addressing that he himself was the one who darted away from it as a perceived threat. And each time they reiterate the story, Eva sort of really digs in deep and I think, and, and Tomas also is, is, and she, she's trying to get him to understand how she was feeling. But at the same time, you sort of see Tomas trying to have her understand that he, like, she's imposed, she's like putting on him this, uh, these expectations that he was supposed to be sort of the hero and savior of the family. And so there's, they're constantly 
talking past one another and really not understanding where they're coming from. What do you think about their relationship with their children? Or what do you think that, how do the children function in all of this? Because they're kind of an odd little duo there. It's hard to say what role the children play in this movie. Uh, I don't really have much of a sense of who they are. So it's difficult to plug them into the very fleshed out dynamic between the two parents. So I found it necessary as far as like a critique of like, you know, masculine protective roles that are are thrust up socially and culturally thrust upon family of like a heteronormative uh, orientation. But I don't know that I got a lot of information out of these kids as far as it applies to the story. Very device-like for the plot. I, at, so in the American, to go back to the American remake, uh, it's two boys who have just more dialogue, a little more to do. And so I thought that it was interesting that in the original, it's a, a older girl and a younger boy. And so I thought maybe they were going to also like the parents' gender dynamics will be playing out with the children as well. But no, don't get any of that. Um, I think the children, it seems like they just show the stress factor that a heteronormative marriage can cause um, or just having kids in general can cause um, with some joys, like when they fly the drone out over uh, and then back and everyone's cheering, but then the kid flies the drone into um, what's uh, Tormund from Game of Thrones. They got the big beard. Um, yeah. Breaking the tension of like that. Is he in Game of Thrones? Out. Yeah. He's Tormund, Giants fan. Yeah. He's a, I, yeah thought, he's kind of I don't, I don't watch now. Game of Thrones, but I thought he looked familiar. Interesting. So I another example of why I don't want to have kids, but it's hard to say <laughs> exactly beyond that. What I thought was interesting was the absence of other children. That's what I thought was more noticeable, that these children are here and there is a significant absence of other children in the whole movie. Well, you have it towards the beginning. Uh, Ebba is talking to another woman at the uh, registration desk and Ebba's like, I'm here with my husband and my two kids. He had five, my husband had five days off. So he's here to spend time with the family. And the other woman is like, I left my kids at home. <laughs> Basically being like, I'm not going to let my children get in the way of me having a great vacation. And we extend that line further when she's talking to a friend of the family. Uh, this woman who is in, is seemingly in like a, a married relationship, but an open relationship. Who also says, like, you know, like, uh, this is just for me. Like, I'm leaving my kids and that dynamic behind so that I can fulfill the other parts of myself that my family has agreed to, as opposed to the sort of, like, comparatively claustrophobic dynamic that we encounter through the central family. I think that I didn't need anything more from those kids. I thought, as you had said, Connor, kids as device, I think it worked great because it was like, Lugging around those, dealing with kids is a lot like just lugging around heavy boots and skis, like trying <laughs> to get down the mountain. And I don't think that it made the the family dynamic dim, uh, any more dimensionless. It was just that I think for the purpose of this story, and I think for some great, I laughed at some like I I found some really comedic moments, especially whenever the kids are yelling. Like there was something wonderful about their reactions to moments. For instance, when 
towards the latter half of the movie when Tomas finally breaks down and has his like essentially his tantrum in the hallway uh, and is crying. And then he's brought back into the room and the kids are like yelling, like, are you like, what's wrong with dad? What's wrong with dad? And they like smother him with hugs. And then they start yelling at the mom so loudly for her to come and embrace and sort of like perform this sort of maternal, it's going to be okay function. And so I think just reducing the kids to kind of screaming devices, I think it works in a, in a comedy setting. And I think it also highlights the childlike elements of some of the aspects of the parents character, like connecting back to our conversation last week about uh, adult and children and the similarities uh, between the two. Um, I think that in many ways, there's some moments where you see sort of childlike responses brought forth in the adults and their reactions to certain situations, like Tomas screaming. And that's the thing, that moment where he breaks down, it's like, it's all been, it all comes to a head there emotionally for him. But in many ways, he is like, having this meltdown and in many ways tantrum just in this hallway of this hotel. It's apparently based on, or, or the, the actor's performance as Tomas in that breakdown moment when finally it's, it's too much. He can't deny that he has failed at uh, fulfilling this sort of culturally expect gendered and expected role of fatherly protection and when he when he can't crucially when he can't deny it anymore like uh, up up till now the tension uh has been that they have different interpretations but it's finally him breaking down and recognizing and admitting that that towering expectation is something that he didn't fulfill and it crushes him uh it was apparently loosely based on uh the performance loosely based on uh like uh, what is called like a famous youtube crying video someone like really like in the guttural throes of like a true extreme revealing and like gut-wrenching expression of pain and confusion um which really comes through in the movie and i think it's a reflection of like him finally confronting this feeling of of having failed in that way. I think a lot of this movie is is chiefly about what is expected of men within heteronormative marriages and family dynamics. And the director has said as much, saying like, you know, the most repeated icon in like film history or storytelling is, at least within most of the pantheon of Western culture, is the recurring masculine hero who is part of a family. And he, he suggests that, like, it's necessary as, like, a cultural tradition in order to justify sending people to war, men specifically to war, which is an interesting concept. And it, it, it illustrates that it is, it is strangling to everyone involved this notion, this toxic notion of, of gendered expectations as far as uh, masculine protection in the face of uh, unexpected uh, calamity and everything, which which is interesting. It's like it's harmful, but at the same time, in a crucial and hilarious scene, the performance of masculinity ultimately, in a weird way, sort of returns the family back into sort of their fantasy of themselves. Um, so we see, as we've uh, been talking about him running away from the family in the avalanche, Ebba 
continually bringing up this avalanche story to everybody they're talking to. And clearly a rift is growing and growing and growing between Ebba and Tomas. They decide to take kind of solo skiing days um, away from the family to kind of be like, okay, you deal with the kids. I'm going to do my thing. And you see them, these sort of different permutations of parent, child, child, and everyone is distant. And even the kids at one point lock the parents out of the room. So there's very much like this family being pulled apart in all these different permutations. But then their final day of skiing, they just, or maybe it's their second to last day of skiing. And the whole movie is plotted through day one of skiing, day two of skiing. Anyhow, towards the end of their vacation, they decide to go out on the mountain on a really, really foggy, snowy day. The the visibility is super minimal. And at the top of the mountain, you know, Eva's like, eh, do we think it's safe? And Tomas is like, it's okay. I'm going to go ahead. We're going to have the children in between us. And Eva, you take up the rear. And so, so man with a plan, you know, so performing this sort of scout leader type of role, and they're going down the mountain and then this wonderful shot of just fog and haze. And then slowly, slowly, the children and Tomas come into view in the fog and you see Eva's not there. And suddenly Eva is yelling in the distance, help, help. And then Tomas is like, okay, I'm going to go. And he leaves the kids there who then just sort of plop in the snow and wait for him to come back. And then the next thing is... Tomas with Ebba in his arms, trudging down this mountain heroically. And then the then you're you later, he puts her down in the snow. And then she suddenly just springs back up and he's like, Do you need help? And she's like, I'm okay. And so clearly they staged this rescue for their children who are like, oh my God, who initially were like, are you guys going to get divorced? And they're crying and they're sad or whatever. And so it's just the funniest ultimate performance. Oh, did you not think that this was faked? No, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I have a quizzical look um, <laughs> for those not watching. No, I think it's absolutely staged, but I think it's not just staged for the children. I don't think Tomas is it's in staged on that. for them. You're right. It's, it's staged for, for him to, 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 yeah. Yeah. For him to reassert himself as the necessary protector of the family within those gendered expectations. And it's, it's proven in a way that like, it's so brilliant. It's probably my favorite part of the movie. It other than the very beginning, which we'll maybe circle back to, but the very end is just a very end of the scene is like, he trudges down the mountain triumphantly carrying her in his arms. And she looks, Calm. She looks contented. She doesn't look harmed. It's clear that this is a performance on her part, but it's for his benefit. He sets her down. And then it just like, rather than cutting, <clears throat> we just stay for a few moments on like Thomas, like triumphantly and self-satisfied sitting there panting before the rest of the family as they wait. And then just before the scene ends, it's basically uh, Eva, the mother, having just presented him with this opportunity to, to, reassert himself as like the protective patriarch of the family like after this long pause she's just like pretty much like all right well we can go like acknowledging that like all right this is over we've gotten this out of the way you're contented we can move on because you need this and it's a it's a mirroring of 
the beginning when the family gets their portraits taken at the so top good. of the mountain. The photo, the photography is, uh, the photographer is so funny. It's like when you go to Disney World and there's like a photographer being like, family, get together. We're going to, you know, take these nice portraits of you and then sell them to you at the end. And his little commentary in between each shot is so funny. He's like, ooh, the hero, the young boy. Oh. And so he's like narrating this staged photo of, the family. And then later the mother goes through these photos and she's like, Oh, this is a good one. Oh, my children are so beautiful. And so that end hero, supposed hero scene at the end mirrors nicely the the photo staging. And it's like these sort of visual fulfillments and representations of like a solid, wonderful, functional family. (laughs) It's a photographer right at the beginning, establishing that This is a family that needs instruction on how to function as a family unit, even to the degree that it it needs to be instructed for for a false presentation as far as photography. And when she's looking through the photos, too, there's a really cool moment when she's going through, like, the kids. And it's like, oh, these two would go great together. It's just the two kids alone. But then the last one she looks at, after being very enthused about all these photos, is just the two of them, uh, husband and wife. And it seems as though she can sense that it's staged and presented in a way where she like she she doesn't say to the photographer like, oh, this is what's going on here. But you can sense that she's recognizing it within the photograph she's been presented with. And the framing in the scene, too, is also interesting. It has to be intentional of where she's looking at the first I believe it's the first time we see the husband in the photos. His head's cut off out of frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just see the rest of the family with the husband's head cut off by the shot. So I feel like that has to be intentional too. Well, you have scenes with the kids that's an interesting framing where there are several scenes where both adults are essentially cut off from the torso up and you just have the children. And so there are these sort of different segmentations of family and like what, who fits in the frame, who doesn't. The, there's this a uh, hilarious shot where they're all tired after a day of skiing and they're in their like matching long underwear looking like some like Swedish magazine cover <laughs> of a slumbering beautiful family or whatever. And even that's so staged, even in their like moments of repose, it's so uniform and weird. <laughs> and, yeah. Just like, you know, like lifestyle brandy. Uh, like, like the, even in their moments of intimacy, there is uh, an affect of staging everything. Yeah. 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 One, um, it's it's great. We're talking about performance, uh, the performative nature of relationships, because I think that intersects really nicely with the subplot of like open relationships and the performative nature of marriage. Earlier, when we talk about the avalanche, it's kind of like, you know, we, how are we going to react to these primal instincts, these scenarios, these life or death situations? And for most of the world, it's, you know, how do we react to the chaos of planet Earth? It's by going into, you know, uh, either heteronormative or single partner, you know, monogamous relationships. And so it was interesting to see Ebba, right, is the wife's name, kind of. Mm-hmm confronted with this lifestyle of like well we just do what makes each other happy yeah there's risk um when she's talking to the other woman of like yeah there's risk of like they'll leave me sucks to be alone but like what's best for my children is if i'm happy and ebba has such a 
visceral reaction to this conversation, which I think is at first I was like, why is she having such an intense reaction? And then as it goes on, you know, it's kind of like she is, you know, she unwittingly trapped herself in a, you know, what society expects as a marital, performative, wifely duty relationship. Um, the movie, I don't think, it doesn't drill down. I would say this is more of like a subplot, a kind of sub-theme. But I think interesting to tie primal reactions to disaster and then kind of like human desire, human instinct versus societal expectation or kind of comfort. Or there, There's something there that I thought was interesting. And you also have comparisons of the woman who's talking to Ebba at the bar about right her relationship between her family and her kids and things like that. And then you have uh, Matt's, who's the Game of Thrones guy, who's, I guess, a family friend who is divorced and now going to the ski resort with his girlfriend, his uh, 20s girlfriend or whatever. And um, after Ebba and Thomas tell the avalanche story, then we get kind of a bedroom scene with Matt's and his girlfriend. And she's sort of like needling him. She's like, what would what would you have done? Like, I, I think you would have reacted the same way. So she's sort of trying to like figure out, as I'm sure all the audience members watching this film are like, you know, watching it, I'm like thinking about like what stupid instincts and impulses would I have in like a momentary uh situation, a disastrous situation. But but you see the the contrasts of how Matt's perceives himself and his family. Versus the woman who's talking in the bar, how she perceives herself and her family. Um, and then you also see a mirroring of sort of like gendered assumptions about how characters would react uh, as Matt's and his girlfriend are talking. And he's like, oh, it would be like me telling you, I, you're the kind of person who wouldn't be able to have children. You know, it's like, uh, and so he's imposing on her this sort of gendered notion that what women are concerned about is whether or not they can, you know, have a child or something. And so you see all of these couples unraveling based on uh, comparing themselves to other people and, uh, right, uh, society's sort of assumptions of what a person would be concerned with. Yeah, the ripples of confronting these uh, gendered expectations and uh, among multiple relationships. And what's so satisfying, too, about Matt's uh, dynamic with his, his younger girlfriend is like she brings it up pretty casually and is just like, uh, what do you think you would do? And then it turns into a fight all night to the point that by the end, she's just like, like she she's the one that is sort of like uh, and this other character, this um this friend that she's ta- uh, that Ebba is talking to earlier on is just like. People that aren't as uh, ensnared by these sort of gendered marital expectations. And it's just like, finally, it comes to the point where she's just like, look, we've gone over this and over this. You've got to shut up and we've got to go to bed. (laughs) Even though she's the one that brought it up, just because he can't stop picking at it now that the idea has been introduced. But it's like, it's like that need to think about hypotheticals and like, read into everything like i feel like uh, you know it's it's like you see something depicted or portrayed and suddenly you're thinking about it in your own mind in your own con like within your own either relationship or context or whatever um and so that i feel like they they play sort of funny foils to what's going on in the main storyline of thomas and ebba and i feel like everybody who has 
friends who are in relationships uh, has experienced moments where you're dragged into your friend's drama, relationship yep. drama, conflict, maybe not even romantic friends, but just there. It's a very relatable scenario. And I love the moment when like the drone flies in and knocks the wine over and there's a pause and they're like, should we leave? Like, should we still be here? But then they double down and like continue to dive deeper into like this. Charles like, no, leave. This is like, you, you don't belong here. This is not going to go well. Just go. Your friends are dealing with some shit. Go. It's like a couple that can't work things out among, like between themselves, but things suddenly start to get worked out over dinner and wine in front of other people. And if you're on the receiving end of that, you're like, I, yeah, this this needs to be resolved in another situation. <laughs> don't don't make me the audience to your yeah your whole scenario. Yeah, I feel like this movie definitely. Uh, I don't know if you've got you guys have, have watched either season of the White Lotus, but I feel like this was sort of the beginning of uh, a series of like rich people on vacation and like what happens when rich couples get together and wine and dine and then realize that they're unhappy <laughs> and i this sort of set in motion i feel like uh these series of shows like the white lotus that do that yeah it almost turns out as though uh it, it, in all the like you know awareness of like cultural awareness of like intersectionality and compounded like oppression and everything like that there's still these stories of like affluenza that <laughs> that permeate society which i which... don't think is you know not unnecessary but it's it's interesting that it's the push the margins but still recurs yeah right and it's like why do we give a shit about and at some point ebba acknowledges she's like i am on this fancy vacation and i'm i'm unhappy like what the fuck <laughs> um and i think as an audience like as sort of the viewer you're kind of like yes like you have everything you're at this beautiful, beautiful hotel. But I think the movie acknowledges, as we talked about earlier, how weird also this setting is and many men, most luxury resorts. And I feel like, like, especially, you know, when con con uh, confronting cli the climate disaster and ski resorts, immense, like resource, uh, in like intensive, these sort of resource exhausting locations like ski resorts that have to make snow and set off avalanches and you have this courses, family drama yeah, yeah. beach resorts like having to you know send all these uh import things so that people can have all the food they need in like a isolated island and so i think that this movie really reinforces this sort of waste and excess uh, in a in a subdued and understated way, but I definitely think that that is there, um, especially in those shots that Connor was mentioning uh, of just this these massive mountains. Um, and also, it's interesting as the bus. And we'll get to this scene uh, in a second. At the end of the vacation, the bus is winding down, and you recognize, like many tall mountains, the snow is at the like the heights of this mountain, this immense powder, this beautiful white snow. And then they make their way down into the valley where it's just this sort of bleak, rocky landscape as sort of all these characters are winding down from their vacation and <laughs> having to deal with maybe the lowly reality of regular day. Yeah. And the bus scene is an interesting foil. I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. Let's talk about the bus scene. So 
did they finish their five day vacation? Uh, Tomas has fulfilled his role as hero um, in this faked scene. And um, then things sort of want, oh, and then after that faked hero uh, rescue scene, you also see this great shot of the family sort of superhero walking, strutting through one of the ski tunnels. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the use of the sounds and settings and architecture of the resort is so wonderful throughout the whole movie. And there's several scenes of them going through these sort of stupid conveyor belt, like airport uh, shuttles, which is just these stupid shit things that people devise for ski vacations. Anyhow, um, but the family, after they've you know gotten safely down the mountain, they're sort of strutting in their stylish ski gear with their ski boots hoisted perfectly over their shoulders. And that's another very photo shoot scene. They're all feeling good. They're back together. Then we cut. They return to, to the presentation of uh, of what is expected of a family. Yeah, of functional. Yeah, uh, uh, beautiful family. And so we cut to this the bus that shuttles people from the top of this mountain back down to, I guess, wherever they get their train or uh, plane to where they came from. And this bus driver is not doing a very good job of getting down these super treacherous, windy roads. And he's jolting and stopping and starting several times. And people are getting a little unsettled on the bus. Specifically, Ebba uh, is like, Somebody needs to take over driving. So unsafe. I want to get off the bus. She repeatedly asks the bus driver to stop. Finally, he does. And Ebba just, (laughs) she just leaves the bus, which is a nice, also mirroring uh, somewhat of the beginning of the movie when Tomas is like, I'm out of here in this situation. But then most of the people get off the bus, except for the friend who was the friend at the bar who was like, I left my kids at home. I'm just having a good time on vacation. She decides to stay on the bus. The bus gets moving again, gets out of its rut or whatever it was in, and then goes back down the mountain, leaving about 25 people just trudging, including Tomas, Eba, and the kids trudging down the mountain. The final shot is just this front shot into night. So it's like cuts and the sun is setting and they're still walking down this mountain. Uh, And then the movie ends and it's sort of this ambiguous ending. And I was very curious to know what you guys thought uh, and what we're supposed to make of the end of this movie and what it says about where the family's at and also the sort of them in the context of the rest of the people who just got off the bus and now have to walk who, who knows how many miles back down to the nearest village. I have a hard time figuring out what they're going for with this, in a sense. It it does feel like another version of what we see on the slopes at the end, where, like, or maybe a less conscious version. Like, that one is the mother, Ebba, staging a a familial catastrophe and circumstance in which Thomas can be the hero. And then, but then at the end, it seems like she is, I mean, she's genuinely afraid of the way this person's navigating this roadway and she, she bolts and leaves the family behind. She's the first one off the bus. So it, it, it almost diffuses the power of the previous scene in a way in mirroring what happens at the beginning so much, I think, but like, there is something to be said about her friend being someone who is more less confined by social and marital expectations 
seeing it through with the driver and continuing as all of them, like in the cold, make their way down uh, this giant mountain uh, along the road on foot. And we have uh, Tomas, like sort of like, again, like reinforcing this like masculine patriarchal heroism of just like this gruff kind of like the guy offers him a cigarette and he takes one and he starts smoking it. And the, one of the kids says like, I didn't know you smoked. And it's like, uh, I normally don't, but I do sometimes or something like him returning to like this image of like rugged masculinity. But I don't know how that syncs with Ebba's actions as far as leaving the bus. I, I, I don't quite understand what that's trying to say, I guess. Yeah. Does it undercut what's happened? And I think part of that is it's not a movie that is engaging in a traditional storytelling format, like just narrative. Like it's kind of much more natural. I don't know. It's very not to sound totally pretentious, but very like European. I don't know. It just feels very like postmodern European. Like, and this thing happened at the end. Let's think about it or talk. I don't know. Does it undercut it? Mm, I don't know. And and they're all staggered right at the end. Like nobody's in unison walking. So I thought like the ending visuals were you know, an interesting layer too. And apparently this bus scene was also inspired by a YouTube video. Which mm-hmm. I found like idiot spanish bus driver can't drive or something like that um so interesting that he took inspiration from these real life filmed on phone inspirations uh there's a few moments in the film so that's kind of an interesting meta layer of like this outside thing he saw influencing a storytelling decision i think is i'm not so sure about what to make about eva's reaction other than I think the whole point of the movie is none of us can predict about like how we're going to react in any circumstance. Sometimes impulse instinct overtakes our behavior and that's what happens. Uh, Like force majeure, you know, unforeseen circumstances or whatever. But I sort of saw the everybody getting off the bus. is just like, it sort of subverts those like survival stories when people band together. There's a funny moment where Max is like women and children off first as if like the a boat is sinking. And it's like mm-hmm. the Titanic or something. And I think it's just one of those funny, like hum- people are just idiots <laughs> and just kind of do things for who knows what reason. And I feel like sometimes there's those, you know, new stories of like, Ooh, group of people stranded at the airport who band together and make make lifelong friendships and get on a bus and go get where they need to go despite the crazy airport circumstances like everyone likes enough a wonderful humans banding together in times of crisis story but like those are fleeting and short and ultimately people are just stupid <laughs> that's kind of how i read the ending um which actually might reinforce the mirroring because like at the end, you know, having reestablished in the scene before Tomas's role as like, you know, again, the protective patriarch and that being something that needed to be earned because of his supposed cowardice in the face of this avalanche is that when she gets off the bus, it's perhaps more normalized because of those dynamics socially, which is why maybe everyone gets off the bus. That's a, I don't know. A, Again, I'm still picking it apart, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately there's like an intentional ambiguity. And I think ultimately, I think the most danger that any of the characters are in is in the final scene. Because you look at this road and you're like, 
who you have no idea how long it's going to take. This is winter time in the French Alps. It's night is falling and there is no protection, no shelter, no luxury resort house to be seen for miles. And it, there are so many scenes for the first part or like throughout the movie where it's like, Ooh, scary. Some scary things happen, but ultimately there are protective mechanisms. Things are fundamentally controlled, like structurally controlled. But at the end, I don't know, they're fucking out there and there's like no other cars and all those people could freeze to death. Who knows? Uh, but the movie just ends and concludes. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's a funny, it's a funny ending. This caught me off guard because in downhill, uh, this scene does not exist. From How does it end? In a couple years now. But essentially, you have the scene where he trudges up in the fog and it's all staged. It's the scene doesn't work at all. And then they're like getting <laughs> to leave. I, 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 it's fuzzy, but they're getting ready to leave. And then as they're going to get on the shuttle, bus or coach, whatever, uh, there's a big snow that's going to fall off the roof. Like a giant, like I don't know, mini avalanche off of the roof of the lodge is going to fall onto the group of everybody. And it's pretty much the same characters, you know, from the original. And then like everybody pushes each other away to save themselves. So, but nobody gets hit and they all look at each other like, Oh, we all try to save our own skin instead of like helping, like, like instead of Will Ferrell who plays Thomas pushing like other people out of the way to save them so he gets crushed everybody like pushes themselves away it's it's very strange i think that's a much more blunt ending that even more so than this one undermines the the scene preceding it yeah right so i think what the american version is saying is at the end of the day people are going to save their own skin nine times out of ten when this one is much more bizarre and ambiguous but it doesn't work either because you don't care about these characters. And like, oh, so they're all just selfish then, I guess. It's, it's a very strange vibe. I don't know. It's like, I imagine that they... I love Jim Rash. I think he's hilarious. But I just imagine him watching it or the producers being like, this makes no sense. American audiences won't like this. Rewrite it to make it simpler. Seems yeah, the like. Americanization of, Euro- of intelligent European cynicism. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, to your point earlier, Connor, I think a lot of what makes this movie work is moments of restraint. Uh, in sort of script restraint and just using visual language, sort of symbols, as as Dave, you were pointing out, and just to kind of stage, yeah, a family kind of falling apart. But I would ask, do you think in the final minutes we have, do you think that this is a dysfunctional family or just a family? Doesn't that cut to the heart? I think of this theme of pretty much every family is dysfunctional. Um, and somehow we have to find ways to function within the dysfunction. So I think you're asking a trick question, Christine, in a way. Um, but I would say, yeah, this family's kind of dysfunctional. But yes and no to your question. Yeah, I'd say the device of the story exposes dysfunction that is rooted in um, a lot of cultural expectation, which is interesting because, I mean, I, that's probably at the root of a lot of family dysfunction. <laughs> For sure, for sure. And uh, yeah. But then the people would also say that an open relationship is dysfunctional. And for that woman, it seems like it's very functional for her and her family, at least from her perspective. So I think that's another just wrinkle, a ripple, I think, as Dave mentioned earlier. 
uh, interesting ripples of what is function, dysfunction, roles and dynamics and such. For sure. All right. Well, any last thoughts about force majeure before we wrap up? We've talked quite a bit about the cinematography, but I wanted to give a special shout out to the use of Vivaldi's Summer uh, from his Four Seasons. I thought the A, having a piece called Summer over a winter landscape <laughs> is another like um, polar um, kind of thing happening. Dichotomy, that's what I was looking for, kind of element. Um, and also, it's just such an incredibly threatening song. Like the very intense um, on top of these forced controlled quote unquote avalanches happening. Um, And I love the interstitials of the like the routine of like the plows happening and the everything is very rhythmic and routine, which I think offers its own kind of purgatory to this family of like every night now they have to hear the avalanches happening every night. They have to you know kind of relive the same, like, Oh my God, do we have to talk about the avalanche again? Do we have to talk about it again? We're talking about it again. We're arguing again. We're locked out again. The creepy janitor guys watching us again. So I, I just thought that that was um, the tone, the, the like big picture 30,000 foot tone setting I thought was really effective. And the use of Vivaldi summer um, was awesome. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the the repeated use of of the Vivaldi piece um, to really like heighten the tension, but also add this sort of like funny operatic quality almost. Not that that piece is an opera piece, but it like sort of heightens the drama in in sort of a, a funny way. This movie, yeah, it's um, uh, to those going into it, I would say, and uh, in, in this coming from me. Uh, on this show uh it's a dense and uh demanding work but it it rewards your attention uh as i said before i think it runs a little bit long and there's some there's some moments that i don't quite necessarily understand the function of but uh all of which are stunningly uh photographed as connor has pointed out and um yeah just just uh, it's yeah, it's a dense work that requires a fine-tooth comb and it's difficult to get a uh, a bird's eye view of, but uh, taken in bit by bit, it's it's really satisfying. It's made me uh, appreciate uh, living single and not having children uh, and made me miss skiing a lot. So uh, uh, an interesting, uh, interesting intersection as far as uh, where my life's at as well. I think this lays the ground. You know, there's a lot, there's quite a few movies about friends coming together to go on a ski vacation. I think the butter with that crew, I think we're destined that we should uh, fulfill that movie trope and do it ourselves one winter. I want to go skiing so bad. I would totally go. <laughs> and this snow looks a hundred percent real, except for the manufacturer. It's like real manufactured snow. It's like, you know, all ski places. That's the thing. Yeah. Right. But it looked all real. And I think Ostland, so I just saw some production note on Wikipedia that he, before he got his big film break, he was making a ton of ski films, Uh, whether it was like ski footage, maybe like for commercial. I'm not quite sure the details of that, but he clearly knows how to capture uh, a mountain and skiers. And uh, so there's some, I mean, the, the. Free sl- I don't know what it's called, like open face ski. I don't know. There's some term, whatever. He and Matt's go on some off pre- uh, trail skiing yeah. off, yeah, whatever it is. And it looks gorgeous, like clearly shots of untouched snow. And the 
actors just walking out into clean top of the mountain snow and then doing an entire scene. I mean, beautifully, beautifully done. Yeah. Is that like one take or do you have to bring clout? Like, you know, I think that they had one take. Yeah. It's crazy. I feel like at those elevations in like, Oh, just you're out. You're just fucking out there. I think that is one take for sure. Or you, you have to change a location. I think filming in the snow We've done a lot of snow discussions, but it's hard to do trackless snow uh, filming. Well, and also just like lighting people and like mm. contrast and like color balancing, shooting at night when yeah. there's white snow. Like it's just, it shows that this dude knows how to film in an all white environment. For sure. For sure. Um, one quick scene I wanted to bring up that uh, was one of my favorite scenes is after their Mats and Tomas go on this epic skiing adventure and they come back for their opera ski beer and they're just looking so cool with their aviators on kicking back their you know their feet out of their boots and this, uh, and this sort of pulsing dance music they're in like ultimate ski bro opera ski mode. And then this like young woman comes up. She's like, I just wanted to say that my friend over at the other bar and she goes up to Thomas and she's like, she said that you are the uh, the best looking man in the entire bar. And then the music rises and he's feeling so good. And you can see him just like, he's like, that was the ultimate compliment. You can just see it on his face. <laughs> like a good 20 seconds later, she comes back and she's like, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. My friend did not mean you. She was pointing at somebody else. (laughs) And then the friend comes along. She's like, I'm so sorry. It was a misunderstanding. And then I guess the dudes that there, it's just like a sort of a male posturing kind of fight almost breaks out, but then gets uh, subdued a little or like gets uh, simmers down a little bit. But it is so good. Just in a short scene how it turns so quickly and that's yeah definitely one of my favorite scenes <laughs> but it's it's also both yeah it's both a short scene and not because it's it's so prolonged this <laughs> apology when she comes back and it's just like so clearly and so brutally reaffirming and reaffirming over and over again like this was a mistake you're not that guy and it just goes on for so long <laughs> and and it's like it it wasn't like he was going to go up it didn't look like he sort of settled for him. That was like the ultimate thing. It was like, he could settle in knowing that they were flirting with him, that they think he's hot. He's masculinely desirable. Like, yeah, exactly. He wasn't going to go up and like, you know, try to make moves. And so she, neither one of the women had to go up to him and say it was a misunderstanding. No, you don't have to clarify that. And they do for so long. The fact that not only the friend, but the woman who was doing the pointing boat walks up to both of them to clarify. So good. Such a little funny tidbit. Well, that was Force Majeure. Uh, yeah. You recommend uh, that you watch it. If you do, send us an email. Tell us what you think. What don't is that watch ending? it on Pluto TV. But don't watch it on Pluto. Don't do, do it. Do not. Find it on somewhere else. Yeah, the the place that shall not be named that I find all of my movies. <laughs> um, 
Well, thanks, folks. Thanks for a great discussion. We That rounds out our dysfunctional family theme, correct? That was our last movie? We made it. We made it as a family we through this, uh, this trial and tribulation. And so we will have a new theme for you next week. Can't wait to chat and uh, catch us on all the socials. Once again, we're so happy to be part of the Movie John podcast family, a very functional family, that podcast family is. <laughs> and um, we will catch you later next week. New theme. Have a great whatever. This has been 